0: One Hour in the Past, a podcast series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center and hosted by me, Kathleen Powell, Curator and Supervisor of Historical Services, and Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator.
1: Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia and we would like to honour the centuries of Indigenous peoples who walked on Turtle Island before us.
0: As museum professionals, our jobs are many fold. Managers, curators, interpreters, researchers, and much, much more. We often find ourselves pining for some more interesting and perhaps wild history in our daily work.
1: Our podcast begins with the idea that a simple search for information can lead you in some strange and wonderful directions. Like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, historical research has a tendency to lead you down a winding rabbit hole that takes you off your original path towards some new and amazing historical places.
0: Each of us has had just one hour to research a topic. 60 minutes, that's it. We research separately, and then we come back together to discuss where one hour in the past has taken us. If you're joining us for one hour in the past for the first time, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and head back into the archives to catch other episodes of historical adventures on topics like hats, soda water, Thanksgiving, telephones, and stuffed animals.
1: This is our last episode of our third series. Can you believe it? We've had, <laughs> we've had so much fun with all these topics, and we're excited for what Series 4 of the podcast will bring in 2021.
0: We're going to try something a little different next year. One Hour in the Past, Series 4, will focus on one topic for the whole series, and that's the history of food.
1: And we're also going to welcome some special guests to join us on some new yummy adventures down the rabbit hole. Keep an eye out for the first episode of Series 4 in February of 2021.
0: But first, we need to finish off Series 3. On this episode of One Hour in the Past, we'll be discussing our one hour of research into the October crisis. Let's get right to it and head down the rabbit hole. Enjoy the episode.
1: As our regular listeners know, we like to start off each discussion with a definition of what we're talking about. Today's topic, the October crisis. The October crisis refers to a chain of events that took place in Quebec in the fall of 1970. The crisis was the accumulation of a long series of terrorist attacks perpetuated by the Front de Libération de Quebec, or the FLQ, a militant Quebec independence movement between 1963 and 1970. On October 5, 1970, the FLQ kidnapped British Trade Commissioner James Cross in Montreal. Within the next two weeks, FLQ members also kidnapped and killed Quebec Minister of Immigration and Minister of Labour Pierre Laporte. Quebec Premier Robert Barassa and Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau called for federal help to deal with the crisis. In response, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau deployed the armed forces and invoked the War Measures Act the only time it has been applied during peacetime in Canadian history. Uh, Kathy, you're up first. Where did you start your research and where did you end your research?
0: Right. So I focused almost all my research on the FLQ itself uh, rather than the October crisis, although the the whole thing all goes together, obviously. Dictionary of Canadian Biography online for Canada um, has uh, a really great timeline of all of the activities that happened uh, during this crisis. And so I spent a lot of time looking at that and uh, and kind of getting into all of the things that happened, which I thought was super interesting. And then um, I all so that's where I started with the FLQ, which I'd never heard this word before, but they were also called felquists, which mm. is like one full word, even though it's three letters. <laughs> so that was really interesting uh and you know basically what we've already said which was uh this crisis that happened between 1963 and 1970 um and that uh, six people essentially were killed in the end Uh, many were injured uh the war measures act was invoked for the only time it has ever been invoked in peacetime canada uh, and the armed forces were deployed in this uh crisis uh, so that's where I started, and I actually ended once I got past the uh, um, the research about the kind of the timeline of what happened during that those years. I ended up at the Montreal Gazette, who did a really awesome series of articles uh, because it's the anniversary of the uh, October Crisis this year, and so they've done some really great articles. I couldn't understand after reading the whole timeline how it is that this all started. Um, I wasn't really fully familiar with the um, economic history of Quebec and the French versus English kind of disparities. Uh, And so one of the articles was really interesting and spoke about a section of um, Montreal, the slum of Montreal um, called Ville Jacques Cartier, which was uh, where many of the men who were... uh, members of the FLQ grew up, and uh, it spoke to the disparity of uh, wealth in that area and, and kind of where the, uh, the, uh, the feeling came that, you know, there was something wrong here and they needed to do something about it. So that's where I
1: ended. Awesome. I started my research uh, kind of along a similar path. I started at the RIN, uh, the political party that kind of preceded... FLQ activity and the one that sort of merged to create the uh, Party Quebecois. So uh, that's where I started with the RIN. And then, and I, their name is, is, my French is terrible and their name is really hard to pronounce in French, but I'll try <laughs> later. We'll try later. Um, we'll delay that as long as possible. And <laughs> I ended up, my research, I have to say, was not chronological. It was all over the place. I was, up and down and all around, uh, even <laughs> into today, even into like 2020. So, because uh, you know the anyway, uh, we'll get into that. <laughs> and I ended up at the uh, 1968 Saint C- C- Jean Baptiste Parade. Oh, excellent! That's where I, that's where I had to stop when the clock ticked sixty minutes.
0: Yeah, sixty minutes was not enough time for this research <sighs> for In sure. Numbers. Like we say that every single time like for every historical topic because of course as historians we just want to do more and more but 60 minutes really didn't feel like enough time to fully understand this topic
1: yeah yeah it's 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 yeah it's not so anyway before we (laughs) before we get into that uh let's take a quick break to hear about some of our upcoming holiday programs Can you believe it? It's almost that very magical time of year. For hundreds of families in Niagara, the holiday and winter season can be difficult simply due to the lack of winter clothing. We plan to do our bit this year, as in every year, with our annual mitten tree campaign. The annual mitten tree campaign has collected thousands and thousands of new and gently used winter clothing items to be donated to community care, and Start Me Up Niagara's Out of the Cold program. The mitten tree campaign begins on December 6th with a virtual event at 10 a.m. Join us on our social media channels for some fun. Then bring your new or gently used winter clothing items to place on or around the mitten tree in the museum's lobby. We're accepting donations until January 3rd. Happy holidays from all of us at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center. okay so we're back uh kathleen you're up first for your discussion of your research because i went first last time so it's all your show
0: okay so the flq or the felquists so who were they that was kind of what i was trying to understand from the start i actually started my research off with the with the the research topic being the FLQ rather than the October crisis on its own. Uh, So that's kind of where my research ended up. So I think if you've kind of stuck with the October crisis, I think we should have a really good (laughs) blend together of what uh, (laughs) we'll see. (laughs) But uh, uh, so the interesting thing, one of the things I found interesting was this idea of uh, radical independence movements uh, Canada, you know, when we, when people just think about Canada, they're not thinking about, you know, um, violent political movements most of the time. Uh, but uh, this particular one uh, was uh, kind of um, used as its uh, background, this idea of a radical political movement that used violence uh, to achieve political ends. That would be versus, say, um, like Martin Luther King or Gandhi, who wanted to use peaceful, peaceful methods for to achieve political ends. So this one is more about violence through uh, to achieve your political goals, and then protesting through vandalism. So really, through destruction, but they also took uh, their kind of base where they started from, from anti-colonialism and uh, communism in countries like Cuba and Algeria, which I thought was really interesting that they really like kind of looked to those uh, different movements to uh, to pull their um, where they were going with their movement. Uh, so the FLQ actually wrote a manifesto, um, and it was about those things, and it kind of went to those themes, which was anti-colonialism and communism and. Um, violence really essentially and a lot of the violence that happened was through bombings and uh many of them were mailbox bombings i wasn't aware of that as much um before this research it kind of took me back a little bit to the ira situation uh in england um around the same time um i hadn't realized that in canada they had used mailbox bombings to such an extent to uh, to kind of you know push forward their movement um So let's see, I looked at the timeline and that's really kind of the the interesting, some of the things that are interesting. So the FLQ is kind of this group of people, they're uh, going around and creating a movement through violence and uh, some areas in Quebec, like the city of Montreal and and the Quebec government actually announce monetary rewards to find people who are involved in this movement because it's becoming such a problem. Uh, but at the same time, in ni- April 1967, they have published a, a kind of a newsletter, which was called La Cogne, which was in English means the hatchet, which again still harkens to this violent uh, kind of idea. And over the course of this crisis... Uh, for I guess around seven years or so, they published sixty issues of this newsletter. and It's interesting to look at them online, especially in our day of tech. It's all like typed and looks like it's been kind of run off on a gestetner or something like that. So to get these things out was not as easy as it is today, where you just you know click a button on your computer and you can send this out to a million people. You had to physically create paper versions of this and start handing it out.
1: Uh, but the advantage is that today the police can just look up your IP address and come and get you. Uh, Back then it was a lot harder for them to figure out who was you know writing and where they were being printed and all that stuff yeah.
0: Yeah for sure. Uh, So um, in 1964 um, in Montreal at a, a store called the International Firearms Gun Store Uh, The FLQ actually kills one employee, a woman named Leslie McWilliams, and uh, at the same time in the raid that ensues from this violent action, the police kill uh, an employee of that uh, or, uh, I I think he was an employee, sorry I didn't write it down, I should have, a man named Alfred Pinnish, and this kind of sparks off the the violent part of this movement from what I can understand, Um, and... uh, it really, I think, is a bit of a wake-up call for people that, you know, this is a, a something that people need to sit up and pay attention to what's going on here. Uh, and so, of course, there's mail bombs that continue, like I say. In November 1967, the FLQ publishes a new journal called La Victoire. Um, and then in May, on May 15, 1968, a publication... So it was written by an FLQ member, Pierre Valliere. It was a Mm -hmm. book, and it's called the French version of the N-word, Blanc d'Amérique, which is white ends of North America, essentially. Um, And it's really like a manifesto. It's not the FLQ manifesto, but it's kind of like this this manifesto that is used for... uh, Really, um, economic disparity uh, for different peoples, and so I thought that was really interesting. I'm gonna skip to the end of my research because I couldn't doing that the timeline. I wasn't really understanding what was going on here because I didn't really understand the disparity, um, and so I'm going to this article about uh, from the Montreal Gazette in October of this year, in October 2020. Um, this is about uh, a motion being brought forward in the Quebec legislature to um, apologize to those people who were wrongly imprisoned during this crisis and it talks about Pierre Valliere and his uh, he was an This ideological leader of this movement, and it talks about this Ville Jacques Cartier, which I mentioned earlier, which is a slum on Montreal's south shore, which really doesn't exist anymore, but uh, in the 1960s uh, and before that, it existed, and it was um, one of the the quotes that I took out of this newspaper article was that the people who the men who lived there were not men, but dirty masses. So imagine like if you're living in this place, they were also called human scrap. And these were, um, essentially these were French people who lived here and they were uh, poorly treated. They lived in slums, you know, to the extent that, you know, their houses might not have had heat or indoor plumbing and those kinds of things. And this is in the 1960s. and it was um, the, the place where many of the FLQ members grew up. Uh, and it was also riddled with municipal corruption. Uh, anyway, there was a, um, a big disparity between the French and English in wealth at the time. This is where this all comes from. Apparently in the 1960s, francophones earned 34% less than anglophones. And that's where this is coming from. And I don't think that we fully understand it as non Quebecers uh, where this was coming from at the time because uh, I think sometimes we just don't understand we don't realize that the disparity that was growing up now because it's it's so different now than it was then Uh, this idea that uh, white English people were able to to uh, kind of run the entire province as their own fiefdom almost (laughs) and that the French uh, populations, especially those living in the slums, were a real, in a real tough situation. Uh, there were some uh, uh, interviews in this newspaper article that talked with people that worked in factories at the time who, you know, white English people were making more money than white French people in those same factories. Uh, and so Pierre Valliere writes this book that is basically about that, is these... Uh, Francophones who are essentially considered kind of like the lesser, lesser people at the time. So that's where that comes out. That comes out in 1968, and that's as a result of this, you know, growing up in this slum. Um, and so this movement kind of grows up around that. He wasn't the only one that experienced this, but there were obviously there was a lot going on in this society at the time for it to be taken up by them, right? um so 1968 um and in his book he depicts quebec's working class as a colonized people and argues that their conditions can only be improved through armed revolution so he takes up this mantle of uh violence uh to achieve political ends essentially Uh, and then in october 1968 so that book was published in may and then in october 1968 the parti quebecois is formed Um, And then, of course, there's more bombings that happen. Uh, Interestingly, this one bombing that happened, a gent named Pierre-Paul Jeffroy, something like that. I'm sorry, Pierre-Paul, was arrested for uh, some bombings. And when he was arrested, he had 161 sticks of dynamite and 31 cylinders of pentomex, which was an industrial explosive. Holy jeez. And... (laughs) He uh, was—he pleaded guilty to 31 of the FLQ bombings, um, and had 129 charges placed on him at the time. He received 124 life sentences plus 25 years, just to add on to that, uh, which was the longest prison sentence that was ever levied in the British Commonwealth. That's a pretty substantial prison sentence on top he of all holds, that.
1: He holds—he holds—he holds a lot of records actually because. That was the highest amount of dynamite ever, you know, captured in a criminal act. So he had the most dynamite. He had the most life sentences. Yeah. Uh, and there's there's a story. I'll talk a little bit about in my research, but there's a little bit of a story about how he didn't actually or pl- like plan 31 bombings, but he took the fall for the rest of them so that the others could sort of continue on
0: yeah and that, that's almost a theme that runs through yeah. uh, their movement is that uh, part of the reason why it was so difficult to find them and also to prosecute them is that no one really um, ratted on the next guy that's right. <laughs> essentially they it's very
1: much like playing whack-a-mole right yeah. yeah
0: yeah um and then in may 1969 the flq members hijack a plane and then they ordered them to play fly the plane to cuba so we think that this whole hijacking thing is more modern but really isn't Uh, and then it leads to the October crisis um, where James Cross as you mentioned at the beginning kidnapped by was kidnapped by the liberation cell of the FLQ so there were actually more than one kind of grouping of the FLQ uh, and the liberation cell um, kidnaps James Cross um, and they're looking for the release of 23 political prisoners, $500,000, which to me doesn't seem like a lot of money. <laughs> Not um, today. <laughs> uh, and they want the broadcast and publication of their FLQ manifesto. And then, of course, they want safe passage to either Cuba or Algeria. And then, so this is at the beginning of October, October 8th, 1870. 1870. Um, The FLQ manifesto is actually read in its entirety on CBC Radio Quebec. Uh, another radio station in Quebec actually reads the manifesto ahead of it, just ahead of the mm. uh, the CBC. But uh, the big official reading of the, uh, the manifesto is done on October 8th, 1870. And then at the same time as this is all happening, they've basically have almost like a military presence in, in Ottawa. And they've pulled in the military to try and uh, uh, support um, peace, I guess, you know in the area and to try to keep this from getting out of hand. Uh, one thing that people might remember is Pierre Trudeau is the prime minister at the time. And he gives a famous line, um, which people call the just watch me line uh, on October 13th, 1970. And Trudeau says, which I am amazed. I don't even remember Well, I don't remember this because I wasn't alive, but even going back and looking at it, I'm actually amazed what he said. Yeah. <laughs> he says, Uh, in response to a question about the military presence in Ottawa. Well, there are a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see, people with, like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can, All I can say, say is, uh, go, go on and bleed, bleed. But, it's but it more is more important, important to keep law and law order, order, in order in society, in the in the society, society than, to, uh, than to be, uh, to be worried it. about uh,
1: weak need people who uh, don't like the looks of... Uh, and
0: when asked how far he would go, Trudeau replied, At, at order, any him cost?
1: Him. At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? You just watch me.
0: Which is, you know, so iconic of... And it's kind of almost become iconic of Pierre Trudeau uh, as the Prime Minister as this uh, um, kind of outspoken and I'm just going to say it like it is kind of um, politics and uh, t- calling people uh, uh, bleeding hearts was, was his th- one of his things. So he says that. And then October 16th, uh, 1970, the War Measures Act is invoked because, of course, remember that this, uh, these guys are still... Uh, have been kidnapped and i'm sure you're going to talk more about this so i'm not going to get into it too much um the flq is outlawed and membership becomes a criminal act and some normal li- li- civil liberties have been suspended uh, and arrests and detentions are authorized without charge and that is really the big thing today uh, when you go back and read the articles that have just recently come out a lot of the uh, the idea of um uh having them uh, apologize to uh, people who were involved in this. It's apologizing to people who were wrongly convicted at the time or who were wrongly imprisoned at the time. Because under the War Measures Act, they were able to hold people in prison without uh, pressing charges. And some people stayed in prison for a significant amount of time uh, before they were released with nothing. And so, you know, that would, I'm sure, leave a stigma. Um, And of course, it would impact, you know, if you're working, what are you going to do if you're off work for so much time? Maybe you lost your job or those kinds of things. Uh, The NDP leader at the time, Tommy Douglas, compares Trudeau's and the government's use of the War Measures Act as using a sledgehammer to crack a peanut. Um, But Canadians support the decision. And interestingly, going back to the people being um, arrested and and detentions without authorization, or without charges, is uh, 250 people are actually arrested. That's significant. (laughs) Within 48 hours, that's a lot. So after all this, October 17th, Pierre Laporte was actually found dead. So they were hoping he would be released alive. Uh, He was found dead in the trunk of an abandoned car. I think that that was, you know, the low point of the uh, the October crisis for sure. Uh, But it didn't just continue in October. It continued on. Um, The... There was a a public order or temporary measures act that was enacted in December 1970, which replaced the War Measures Act, Uh, and it was in force until April 1971. So this continued for a significant amount of time uh, where there was a lot of political instability uh, in Quebec. Uh, In the end, 497 individuals were arrested, 435 were released, and 62 were charged. So that's uh, a lot of arrests that weren't people who were potentially involved in any way at all. Uh, It almost gives you that same feeling of, you know, McCarthyism in the States when they were looking for communists. You know, lots of they, you know, basically just threw the blanket over everyone (laughs) and see what happens. So I can totally understand how there was this idea that uh, there should be uh, apologies for those who might have, um, who are caught up in this movement that were not involved at all. Uh, And then I, that is, I almost took me the full hour. And then I started reading from the Montreal Gazette, which I mentioned, um, and uh, read about Ville-Jacques Cartier and the disparity between French and English. And then I got to the one hour and I was so disappointed because I wish that I had had time to read a lot more about uh, the economic conditions that actually led to this movement. Uh, So that was slightly disappointing uh, on that part. I will go back and read more, but I won't be able to share it with our (laughs) listeners today. So that's kind of where that took me. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I know that's kind of jumps all over the place, but
1: no, I think honestly, I think unless you were to spend a lot more time or read, you know, a full book about it, it's impossible to be able to tell a coherent story in that amount of time. And that's the, the one regret that, you know, this podcast always has is that there's just never enough time, but like we would need hours and hours and hours to tell a coherent story anyway. So the jump around don't feel bad because just wait <laughs> just wait it's <laughs> even worse um and with that we're going to take a quick break and hear about our upcoming uh winter 2021 lecture series very excited to have some special guests on the lecture series hi everyone it's adrian here at the museum can you believe it We've presented 15 lectures on YouTube since we pivoted to bring you digital programming and keep you engaged and up-to-date on our community's local history. We're so excited to continue the series, so mark your calendars. Here's our winter and spring 2021 lineup for the Virtual Museum Lecture Series. We're so happy and excited to begin the series with special guest Rochelle Bush, local historian with the BME Salem Chapel on February 2nd. Rochelle will deliver a talk about the many abolitionists who visited St. Catharines during the long fight for emancipation. On February 16th, Sarah Nixon, public programmer, will be here to discuss the myths of the Underground Railroad, and some of the challenges those myths present in interpreting such a popular, secretive and fascinating history. On March 2nd, I'll be here with a talk about our city's urban development, titled No Exit the dead-end streets of St. Catharines. On March 16th, our curator Kathleen Powell will be on to discuss the Boer War and our local participation in her talk titled, For King and Country. On March 30th, we're very excited to welcome local geographer and former Brock University map librarian Colleen Beard to talk about the historic Welling Canals mapping project. Then, on April 13th, we're also very excited to welcome students from the Brock University Historical Society, to present a mini-symposium of their recent undergraduate work. And finally, on April 27th, we'll close out the winter session of the Virtual Museum Lecture Series with a very special guest, author and historian at the Canadian War Museum, Dr. Tim Cook, who will give a talk about remembering the Second World War and his new book, The Fight for History. To register and for more information, send us an email at museum at We'll see you in the new year. Okay, so we're back. Uh, I'm going to share my research. I uh, And also, I just want to note that uh, we're going to put um, everything Kathy mentioned in the footnotes uh, okay. to the episode. So um, the Montreal Gazette article and so on. Some of that will be in there. You can explore on your own, which is really great. Uh, And maybe go on a rabbit (laughs) hole research on your own. Um, So my research, I started... I have to say I've cheated uh, a little bit because I've been listening to... So this isn't included in my one hour, but I've been listening to the CBC podcast that was done in sort of not commemoration, but in recognition, yeah. I guess, of the 50th anniversary. It's called How to Start a Revolution. I was listening and to
0: that as well. What a great yeah, podcast. It's yeah. good. I know. I didn't it's try to not let it bleed into my research. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I also have tried to keep it outside of my one hour. So, um, uh, but I, we'll also put that in the footnotes. And if you're listening to the, that podcast, you need to uh, go and listen to that podcast. Uh, how to start a revolution podcast. There are seven episodes and, uh, varying between half an hour and an hour and it's excellent research and storytelling. And that's the kind of podcast that you need, uh, for (laughs) something like this. Um, and I'm sure they would say the same thing that they had, they didn't have enough time and that there's a bunch of stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor and and so on. But anyway, they tell some pretty compelling stories and there's some pretty emotional episodes as well. Um, so they do a really good job of trying to cover, everything. So I started my research with the RIN. uh, In English, the Rally for National Independence. Okay. So the, in French, it's the Rassemblement pour (laughs) l'indépendance nationale. That's pretty good. And that's it. We're not going to do that (laughs) (laughs) again. The, so that's where I started. It was founded by André uh, Dalmagne, Marcel Chaput, uh, and uh, Pierre... Uh, Burgo in 1960 and talking a little bit about uh, what Kathy was talking about it was like the conditions that led to the establishment of uh, both the RAN and then eventually the FLQ comes out of the sort of the beginnings of the quiet revolution uh, and the sort of uh, throwing off of this mantle. Some, some people, some Quebec politicians and others called it the dark ages under uh, the government of Maurice Duplessis, uh, who was very much a status quo uh, premier and wanted to sort of entrench a very conservative family-based and Catholic life in Quebec after the Second World War. So there was a lot of, not a lot of, sorry, there was a lot, not a lot of social assistance. (laughs) There was a lot of um, uh, hands-off in terms of... um, capitalism in Quebec and sort of, the, uh, especially in the 1960s, there was a feeling that Anglo capitalists ran amok, basically, in both government and uh, the financial sector in Quebec. And basically, as you were saying, Kathy, by, you know, the mid-1960s, there was a feeling that Francophones were held in servitude uh, by Anglophones, whether Canadian or, or Quebec Anglophones and that it was intentional and not just sort of a condition of capitalism that, you know, we might consider poverty a com- condition of capitalism today. And maybe, you know, um, particular groups of people who have a hard time, like immigrants or that kind of thing, uh, might be a condition of their, immig- uh, their you know, new Canadian-ness. Yeah. But it, would, it kind of went beyond that in that it was... Uh, quite quickly identified as, you know, Anglo versus French and rich versus poor and the white uh, rich Anglophones holding French Canadians in poverty. So you can kind of get that that is a really hard, uh, hard line to engage democratically with because it requires the, you know, sharing of power and maybe the diminishing of power of white, rich... Um, I keep wanting to say Anglicans. They probably were Anglican as well. Uh, <laughs> Anglos, <laughs> or English folks in in Quebec. And it and so, had gone on
0: for so long.
1: And it had gone... Yeah, it's very entrenched. The feeling was something radical n- needed to happen. And so the RIN was founded out of that. Uh, but their... Uh, they took on additional, um, I guess you could say, pillars in their in their uh, political philosophy. And one solution to that was that Quebec needed to be independent from Canada. So that's where sort of the anti-colonial part comes uh, comes in. In that French Quebecers were, again, as as you mentioned, uh, held in by their colonial masters, which were English Canadians, either in Ottawa or in or in Quebec. And so separating from Canada was one part of the solution to that. The other part was that the R.N. and the FLQ, mostly, for the majority, I think, were, and most separatist organizations at this time, because there are more than one. These are the main ones that we're talking about, but there were... Splinters, left, right, center, yeah. all over the place, all the time, and refoundings and mergers and all sorts of things, and so that makes it really hard to tell a coherent story as well, because one day they're the RIN, and then the next day they're something else, and then the next day they're something else, and they keep moving around, and different people go different places. So, uh, the but the other thing was that they were uh, socialist, very socialist, if not all the way communist, uh, but on on the on the less less hardline side they were socialist and sort of blamed capitalism for their problems Uh, and the fixes for this for the RAN were democratic but uh, eventually the FLQ got fed up and lost patience with all of that and so people uh, broke out from from the RAN and from others or just joined the FLQ in, in general. And left the FLQ and that was founded in 1963 by George Shooters, Raymond Villeneuve, and Gabriel Hudon. And then oh, I forgot one thing was that uh, the other thing is that the entire situation in Quebec needed to be uh, needed to, needed a revolution to, to solve that solve it. and the RAN perhaps not uh, a violent revolution but a revolution nonetheless because Quebec needed to be a republic. Um, so the, they needed to sort of make the state uh, the focus of Quebecers and not the crown. And so, you know, getting fed up with parliamentary de- democracy is one thing, but they wanted to completely overthrow all traces of colonialism, all traces of any sort of, um, you know, British rule or, or the crown or whatever uh, to establish their own Quebec republican state. So that's where all this like it's a huge mess of of political philosophy that's developed yeah over 50 years. It's still
0: trickling down and the whole language the language situation is really also still you know in flux based on what was happening at the time as well you know it's this French French versus English do you have all French versus all English or a mix of both or what is it and uh, how does that connect to uh, yeah, and yeah, I, th- I think that what's really...
1: Yeah, I think what's really interesting about that is that all of this is still in public memory. That there yeah. are people pro- who are elected currently who either believed or believe some of these things. Uh, and so that's what, like, the language debates come in. The um, uh, Especially around immigration, that new immigrants have to learn French rather than English because that might help them to stay in Quebec and then you like grow Quebec society that way in a French way. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, it has policy implications today, which I think is hard for people, you know, our age to, who weren't alive at the time, right. To understand why the political situation in Quebec can be so changeable because there's, it seems like there's a new party every (laughs) election. (laughs) And so if you're not in it, right. If you're just watching you know, every four years or five years, whenever there's an election, if you just sort of peek now and again at what's going on, it feels like it's very uh, unstable. It does, and s- yeah. so and it does. If- th- but that's where a lot of this comes from, right? Anyway, the whole point of all of that is that the political culture is still in- influenced by not just the October Crisis, but the all of like all the RAN and this sort of family of political philosophy. Uh, that yeah directs people's votes. The thing that makes all of that complicated is that even in the 1960s and then in the October crisis itself, there's a huge variety and a wide variety of degrees of leftist views inspired by uh, all so many different sources, whether it was the writings of people who were in the RAN or international communists like uh, Castro and uh, Che Guevara. Um, The Communist Manifesto was a big part of the FLQ and the RAN's sort of baseline, um, especially in sort of throwing over colonialism. And then if you look at what's going on in the rest of the world in the 1960s, I forget how many, but a number of African countries sort of uh, ended British rule, whether... um, willingly or sort of uh you know if they if they they let it if they let it or if it was a revolution or if the british let it and sort of kind of said off you go on your own um a number of sort of decolonizing uh activities were going on depending regardless of what side uh they were happening from and so like if you're a quebecer a french poor quebecer who feels the the pressure of poverty and pressure of maybe discrimination against your people and you're looking at yeah you know the you know, all of this going on in the world then you can see how easy it is for people to especially young people to get caught up in uh, that kind of I don't like the word radical radicalization but I think it had that impact uh, especially for those who became super violent and you know, yeah. went all the way, all the way to 1970. I think
0: at that time it would have seemed like radicalization for sure. Whether or not it's become more mainstream is, yes. is different. But yeah. at the time it would have seemed like incredibly radical, right?
1: Well, and I think it's that's really interesting because, the, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but the reaction of English Canada versus French Quebec, the reaction to the October crisis by by different groups, yeah. uh, is kind of interesting. And you can see, which narratives have come out in the wash as the sort of the dominant nar- dominant narratives of history um, in Canada today? So I spent some time looking at the FLQ manifesto, um, and they say they've been driven to these acts. This is the 1970, October 1970. Yeah. So they say they've been driven it, driven to the uh, these acts by a failure of democracy, because democracy is belongs to the rich, and that's in direct response to the, the Liberal Party victory. In the last election, that the lack of control of destiny of the people of Quebec and the exploitation of those people and the workers uh, and the institutions are all for the benefit of the English in Quebec and the federal federal government in Ottawa that, quote, response to the aggression perpetuated by high finance through the puppet government at Ottawa and Quebec. That, quote, we wash our hands clean of the British parliamentary system and the FLQ will never allow itself to be distracted by e- the electoral crumbs that the Anglo-Saxon capitalists toss Quebec's way every four years. That's great. So, yeah, it's a it's a very well-crafted uh, message. And I, th- I think that is another, an entire, an, another, study uh could be a thesis i'm sure that you know the progression of the messaging of the flq from sort of like ragtag to almost professional revolutionaries you know is is another another great narrative um that we don't have time to get into you know from 1963 to the 70s 70s or 1970 you can see the the progression of this anger and the progression of their um of their activity and a lot of people in the media at the time called it a graduation from you know uh mailbox bombs or shoebox bombs to you know uh and bank robberies and that kind of thing to kidnapping so yeah the most well-written part was at the end quote we are the workers of quebec and we fight to the bitter end with the help of the entire population we want to replace this slave society with a free society operating by itself and for itself A society open to the world.
0: You get the feeling when you're reading about this stuff that it's, it's very much like this, you know, a couple hundred years of baggage that has just created a tipping point, and uh, it is very well written. Um, It's it's really an interesting, and you can see it's like we're at the end of our rope. We've got nothing else. This is where we're going.
1: But I think what's really interesting, and this is, I kind of skipped the October crisis actually because. Uh, itself, anyway, the reaction of, uh, and I'll get, because uh, I wanted to get into the reaction of the October crisis and sort of the impact that it had in political culture, because none of those feelings go away. Yeah. Even though members of the FLQ were arrested uh, and put in jail, the feeling was still there. And so that kind of left democracy to deal with, right? Um, and it didn't deal with it right away, but it would. And would have pretty big implications a little bit later. So uh, the reaction in English Canada to um, the October crisis was the fact that violence and theft, uh, you know, bank robberies and that kind of thing, throughout the the decade, and then eventually the terrorism and kidnappings and that kind of thing outweighed and overshadowed all the demands and problems and grievances that perhaps the um, members of the FFU and the RAN and, you know, of French society had perhaps those were, you know, relevant and totally fair grievances that, you know, they're like, as your example was that like French people made less money working the same jobs as an English person. So like that's a fair grievance, but that the, the violence distracted basically the rest of English Canada and didn't endear any of the demands to the rest of rest of Canada at all. thing that is important to note is that trudeau was uh, from quebec and one thing that i thought about a lot actually is what would be the reaction of quebecers english quebecers especially and the government of quebec if it was an english pm who was sort of as tommy tommy douglas said using a sledgehammer to crack open a peanut. (laughs) So I think that the, uh, the advantage that Trudeau had, and perhaps the reasons why it went the way it did was because Trudeau himself was from Quebec. And so I like, that's a pretty important part of the story that perhaps he had the moral and the, you know, the public authority to be able to deal with this issue because it was his own province. And he had, you know, grown up, gone to McGill in Quebec, you know, like all that, that kind of thing. He's a member of that society. Um, so and you know what role did he play in that situation what what the impact would be if it was a non non non-quebecer and non-french prime minister at the time and what impact that would have had yeah (laughs) what 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 would another um prime minister with less sympathy i guess right uh, yeah yeah do so it could have gone could have gone a completely Ter- more terrible direction.
0: That could be an interesting "what if" uh, conversation. We should do a podcast about yeah, that someday. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and then I think too that the other idea of this national crisis uh, is that perhaps it wasn't exactly national. Um, that there were there were bubbles, right? Quebec being one, and Ottawa being the other. That uh, the the army was called out. You know, th- with some exceptions. Uh, some politicians across the country were given extra protection, but um, that the majority of the action and the War Measures Act was implemented in two places, Quebec, especially Montreal, and Ottawa. And so what impact did that have to people living in, you know, Winnipeg who have no (laughs) sense of what's going on in their daily lives, right? And that kind of reminds me of, like, I've asked my parents about this because my my dad grew up in Quebec and they they were just about, they probably, I think they just met after this, after the October crisis, but they were married in 74 and they had the option to live in Quebec or to live in Ontario. And, uh, Western Quebec or Eastern Ontario. And they chose Ontario and I asked, you know, did, did the October crisis or the FLQ have any impact? And they said, no, not really. You know, it was the land that you know yeah it was really the logistical yeah. <laughs> uh, decisions that led them to live there and 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 that kind of like oh well I thought maybe you know why would you choose Quebec if there were mail bombs and stuff like that and again it was like so concentrated in specific areas yeah. that wasn't even a part of their daily lives and you know like he talks about bleeding hearts in the in the thing I think that's a handful of people because the, you know, that maybe were impacted slightly, but the majority of the population, even in the city, were not really impacted that, like, you know, the War Measures Act was really uh, again, a sledgehammer for a peanut, but the actual real impact uh, wasn't as national as we make it out to seem. And that's why probably a lot of people felt that it was an overreaction altogether, that uh, it escalated the FLQ escalated and then we escalated or the or the federal government escalated. That's kind of part the of nature
0: that, of, you know, Canadian federalism, absolutely. right? I, I mean there there you go. There's a an example of yeah. how federalism works in Canada. Is yeah. you know the federal government, if they have to step in, it's almost always an overreaction
1: <laughs> to almost the step, always. step in. And and <laughs> it's interesting about how that works because again, this is a really good picture of, of Quebec. Political culture, the provincial government and the mayor of Montreal asked the federal government to step in to do something because, of course, they were out of resources and, you know, on their last leg, basically. And they they were in over their heads and they really needed a reaction from the federal government. But was it the War Measures Act that was really the, the right call? And so that's something that I guess we'll be studying for a long time. But the reaction in Quebec, again, varied. Most... People in Quebec were against the violence, but supported the issues and the grievances. So that makes it really hard to determine what Quebecers are thinking at this time. Are they supportive of the FLQ? Most likely aren't. But are they supportive of what they stood for? Yes. And so that makes it a really complicated thing, especially when then the government comes in and (laughs) has the War Measures Act. You kind of just... uh, um, proving them right, right, yeah. that that a big colonial power is coming in to put this, you know, revolution down um, so Barassa won, and the Liberal government won the 1973 election, in terms of reaction, in terms of Quebec re- reaction they won the 1973 reaction with the largest share of the vote in Quebec political history wow. so certainly the electorate the people who voted weren't ready for, um Sort of a separatist movement, but um, it's so it's it's more study would need be needed in that for me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I only I did not have <laughs> enough time, but that just tells me that they weren't ready, but that the the underlying grievances were still there, uh, and that some sort of relationship with the federal government needed to be figured out, right uh, and that was a big part of that that 1973 election. And Barassa didn't do a very good job, and he was defeated. Um, and I think there was a lot of corruption involved with the Olympics as well. <laughs> so I read something about <laughs> the issue with building uh, the Olympic Park in Montreal wasn't great. Uh, there were lots of issues with it. And so <clears throat> anyway, the Parti Quebecois put, this is the this is the other thing that makes it complicated. There's no simple answer. And this is what I don't like about the the most of the reactions and most of the analysis from english canada is all quebecers are separatists all all french people are bad for that reason all all you know separatists are terrorists yeah and you can't paint any of them with that brush because they all had totally different views throughout like throughout and they changed often right
0: that's the sad thing's about politics is that it's always yeah. a lot of times it's so black and white and
1: exactly yeah you, you can't put these people yeah. in a box there's no box that fits all of them, especially to us English folks from the rest of Canada who don't have the same complexities in our system. You yeah. Know? So, you know, most provinces aren't as <laughs> complicated, I have to say. Anyway, um, so the Parti Quebecois ran the 1976 election with a l- few lessons learned, and they put separatism sort of on the back burner and made uh, responsible, corruption free. Um, and stable government, their main election issue, because again, the the yep. liberals had done maybe such a, <laughs> a poor job, and so they were elected in 1976 with 41 percent of the vote. So you can't say necessarily that everybody in the province was excited about separatism, yeah. But they were maybe more interested in a government with less corruption, and so the the result of that is, of course, one of the provinces was promises was a referendum on Quebec. Uh, sovereignty in 1980 which they lost right famous which we all remember. but the impact <laughs> but the impact of yeah, which we well i don't but anyway i remember Sorry. the 1995 <laughs> referendum <laughs> not the first one but the second one um but the impact of the referendum of course is that eventually the opening of the constitution and the right. repatriation of yeah. the constitution uh so like all of that from 1960 To 1982 is a huge time of um, political and sort of governance restructuring, whether it's, you know, because of the violence or because of just like the, the huge movement and huge problems identified throughout society that status quo wasn't going to be enough anymore.
0: Some of the most interesting political history in Canada in this time period. Oh, yeah, for sure. sure. And some great uh, exhibits at the Canadian Museum of History related to this time period. If you're really interested and you're in Ottawa, I recommend those.
1: Those are, the, those are the big political impacts, but I think the cultural impacts are, are, again, sort of this confusion of separatism with terrorism and separatism with either socialism, because there were also conservative separatists, <laughs> uh, <laughs> where the, and, and where the bloc, uh, Parti Québécois and maybe even the Bloc Québécois fit on the political spectrum is really hard when some of the other parties are a lot more clear about where they sit. Uh, what the purpose of uh, separatism and sovereignty is in sort of today's political climate? Uh, those are some bi- big impacts that come out of you know uh, out of today, and the implications for the rest of Canada is that the um, it that kind of change determined how the, the the federal government interacted with all the provinces, not just. Quebec. Right. Which is a, is a is a problem today. It's a problem. You know, every province has their own issues with the federal <laughs> government. Some more sort of famously, I'm mean, in public view, like Alberta uh, and uh, and Ontario, and then others that are you know, and Newfoundland too. New, Newfoundland maybe not now, but in Danny Williams' time, Newfoundland was also um, right. sort of uh, uh, um, had a difficult relationship with the federal government. It's the
0: nature of our country.
1: Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's who Federation. we are as Canada. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Figure it out. <laughs> Figure it out. Just don't be violent about it. Right. I think that's the yeah, yeah. that's the goal, and that's that's where probably that's where the line is drawn for most people. That most reasonable people understand that there's a huge difference between the terrorists and violence of the FLQ and the sort of the separatist movement, which is more or less looking for you know uh, independent Quebec, but more an autonomous Quebec at the very right. least. So I ended up in my research, I ended with the, because uh, again, I was all over the place, the 1968 Parade. Oh, uh, right. Saint Jean, Yes. Saint, Saint Jean-Baptiste. Saint Jean-Baptiste Parade, which is the, you know, the huge day, uh, huge day in Quebec. It's bigger than Canada Day. Um, and uh, I guess there were some FLQ protesters who showed up at the parade and threw rocks and bricks at the Prime Minister and the folks the important officials i guess on the dais at the parade oh yes uh, it's a really interesting video that we'll link to in the footnotes but pierre trudeau doesn't move and everybody else kind of scrambles around a little bit but he doesn't move and i think that was a really uh in the video like you know a really good um foreshadowing moment of what the uh, you know the eventual standoff would be that trudeau was gonna win like regardless of what was gonna (laughs) happen he was gonna win um, and you know, don't mess with this guy. That's
0: right. I read about that uh, that parade. Yeah. It became kind of a riot. Um, yes, that's event. right. Yeah.
1: And what a very good topic to end our series three on, uh, in what has turned out to be probably the longest podcast we've done. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with us. Make sure to subscribe to One Hour in the Past and the museum's other podcast, Museum Chat Live, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts so you don't miss any of our historical adventures.
1: We're always looking for ideas to spend one hour in the past researching. If you have a topic you'd like to see us tackle, including any favorite foods you want to know the history of, connect with us at www.facebook.com slash St. Catharines Museum or at STC Museum on Twitter and Instagram. We're so looking forward to chatting with you all again on our next series of One Hour in the Past.
0: That's it for series three of One Hour in the Past. We'll be back in February of 2021 with a whole series all about the history of food and we'll be joined by some great special guests.
1: Until then, we'd like to thank you all for listening and supporting our podcasts and to wish you all the very best for a safe and happy holiday season. Stay safe and stay well, everyone.
0: One Hour in the Past is produced by us, Kathleen Powell and Adrian Petrie and brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center and the City of St. Catharines.